Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John. And Kyle. I'm a U.S. Marine, and the opinions expressed on the cast are my own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, no special guest, just uh, love between the hosts. And today we're going to do a little bit of a, a bounce around a couple different topics. We're going to cover some funny stuff that happened in the news that I feel all of us will enjoy. We're going to talk about a little bit around passwords, because if anyone is listening to this cast more than about, I don't know, 45 seconds, you'll know how much of a pet peeve passwords are for this crew and proper password management. And there's some interesting stuff in the news. And then we're going to do kind of a deep dive on uh, a specific perspective of the security implications of Web 3.0 or Web 3. Um, you may have heard this in context to a lot of like cryptos and NFTs and I'm trying to put as much uh, boomer emphasis as I possibly can on each of those terms. But we are really going to dive deeply into that. And then we're going to end this with John talking us through yet another crazy hack for iPhones that will make you question everything you know about hauling around a tiny computer in your pocket. And we don't even have to research heavily to get that. Like this stuff essentially sends itself to us. Yeah, at this point, we are definitely part of multiple algorithms from all of the agencies of notification of Google and Apple and everything else. And they go, oh, yeah, these guys definitely run a cybersecurity podcast. Here's an entire feed every single day of things that will make you terrified for your life. I mean, kudos to the algorithm curator, though. Absolutely. All right. So let's start this off with a bit of levity. Uh, there was a really funny article, and I, I say funny because it didn't happen to me, about a employee back in 2018 who just got sentenced to seven years in prison because he was mad that his leadership wasn't listening to him about his security recommendations and improvement, and he used his root creds to wipe two production databases. Like, no recovery, no way back. It cost that company multiple tens of thousands of dollars in uh, data forensics to get that data back. And, you know, he did it maliciously. He totally admitted it. He did it out of spite. Something I think that everyone in the IT community has probably thought about, uh, you know, never, never executed upon, but thought about it multiple times in their life. And it's just a very interesting view of what happens if that stuff does go down. Yeah. Repercussions are important. And That's you do right. need to think about this. And, and obviously, as two dudes who spend a decent amount of time of their weekends to talk about this stuff and kind of preach the word, obviously, we are into it. Um, and there are several other, you know, hundreds of thousands, I'm sure, if not millions of people equally into it, right? And and this guy, probably just really into his job, very passionate about it. Uh, this article should probably give everybody their like, hey, take a perspective break here. That's because right. no matter how much you're into this stuff, do you want to spend seven years in prison to make a point to your employer to take security more seriously? Um, if so, oh my. Um, but you know, let's, let's just keep this in mind. Your, your principled stance sh should not, especially on the security side of so something that could happen, uh, probably not worth seven years in prison. There's a sticky note that I actually have on my monitor that I wrote many, many months ago now. And below the I password it. one? Uh, it's below the password one. Yeah. The, below the one that, you know, has my, uh, password one, two, three. Um, and it says on it, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be effective? And I feel like anytime you choose the former, I want to be right things are going to end bad for you. And maybe not seven years of prison bad, but you know, there's a, there's a non-zero chance that it could end that way at this point. So just always remember, at the end of the day, we're, we're helping out with IT things and a lot of us are working to secure our nation's government and security of everybody, but, but keep things in perspective. Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be effective at helping increase the security of all these things? Yeah, and, and we have, 
if not this story, we've heard a version of this story several times over the years, right? That's right. Uh, Corporal fails to uh, make the meritorious sergeant board and decides to, with the only one with admin privs, decides he's not giving anyone the password. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are things like this that are happening a bunch of times all over. So one, for your threat modeling, like ask yourself the question, if Kyle decided to pr- take a principled stand, is he the only one in your org that has that level of admin password? Yep. Always remember, people are your weakest link. So just always have a tabletop exercise around the people. Yes. Speaking of people and making mistakes, I think you have another uh, article here that's pretty similar. Well, it it gets a little bit towards things we've talked about many times on this cast. So there was a a news article came out this week from a bunch of different publications uh, because Google made a press release that followed an Apple and Microsoft press relief where all of these, these three giants in the identity space, really. So Google with Gmail, uh, Apple with iCloud and Microsoft with all of the office 365 stuff all recently announced that they are going to work with the Fido Alliance. And we're going to have a link in the show notes. If you've never heard of these, this organization, but it's the fast identity online, fast identity online Alliance to start removing passwords, and I'm using that in the traditional like type of username, type of password, uh, removing passwords as a thing you will need for your online persona validation. In particular, what they want to do is go towards secondary or biometric authentication methodologies that you already have in order to do this. This is something like Google in particular wants to use your token that's in your Pixel phone or your thumbprint identification that it uses to do single sign-on for like Gmail or your calendar application and say that if you've offed into a physical device or a secondary authentication methodology that you're good across. So if you want to log in on your computer, it'll just validate that token that's on your phone. Um, this, this gets kind of interesting from a single sign-on perspective and like sample skim token authentication perspective. But it is interesting to note that they are all basically collectively coming together and saying passwords are dumb at this stage of the game. They are one of the leading causes of all breaches. And what I will do is I will quote, if you go to the Fido Alliance's website, uh, it's just fidoalliance.org. It's very clear. If you go to their about us page, the top thing they have on the about us page is they say FIDO authentication is the answer. Passwords are the root cause of 80% of data breaches and users have more than 90 online accounts and reuse up to 51% of their passwords. And I bet that number is highly low. I bet the password reuse is way higher in my practical experience. I was just going to say, I, I bet that number is higher. Uh, the, other, the other thing that kind of wasn't covered here, this is an open standard. So the nice thing is you don't have to be one of the tech behemoths to be able to take advantage of this theoretically. Like this is being written as an open standard. So it should uh, be able to permeate more than just the big three here. That's right. And then the very next two things on that page, if you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is such an altruistic, wonderful thing for these large companies to be supportive of. uh, Just hold on. Uh, One third of online purchases are abandoned because people forgot their passwords and haven't been back to that site in so long. And the average cost of a help desk labor to reset a single password, $70. So if you want to know. Oh my God. Think about that. 70 bucks to reset a single password. And people might just not be willing to do it. That's right. They'll just say, I'll, I'll just go to Amazon.com and buy this instead. Uh, notice Amazon was not one of those ones that came out and said they were going to remove passwords anytime soon. But just it's important to understand that as we talk through this, we've always said, you know, if you want to use passwords, which we, you know, have gently 
tried to push people away from, then you got to do it like you understand it. Like you're going to be mature about it. You should use a password manager. You should not have password reuse. You should try to avoid easily remembered passwords and start to use things like passphrases. And we've just gone over and over with this on the cast previously. It's really interesting to see a version of the large, you know, fang level companies taking a stance at this and saying, yeah, we, we actually need to force the hand is what they're trying to do here. People are not going to elect to say, I'm going to go passwordless because those options already exist, everybody, right? We, we, we can't push that any harder. So this is an interesting way for them to socially engineer that into existence by effectively taking all of the major identity platforms and stripping them down to no longer have passwords as the primary auth methodology. It, it's definitely intriguing uh, without question. I also like, I, I've hit the point where I don't, want to read any more articles about how bad passwords are yep. unless you have another solution. And if the another solution is, you know, nothing, nothing against like the Titan keys or YubiKey or something like that. But like if, if your solution involves spending holy crap, tons of money, uh, then, you know, I, I'm looking for solutions at scale. That, that's really what I'm looking for here. So I'm a little bit intrigued by this article just because it's something that definitely could scale and seems fairly uh, able to be implemented. Uh, so I'm going to call this one cautiously optimistic. That's the hope. I mean, I try to put myself, we, we had Troy Hunt on this cast uh, previously. He's a super kind of mega personal hero of mine. And I try to put myself into his shoes about how bored must he be talking about passwords over and over again at this stage, right? Like he has single-handedly helped push so much maturity of the password management space and, and the, the security problems with passwords, but we're still all talking about it. I still have that conversation weekly with people and customers. And I mean, I've, I've published those articles in 2018 on Google's website and, you know, we're still here. It's, this is hard. And so it takes a concerted effort from companies like this in order to make that change. So I'm with John. I'm cautiously optimistic and I'm glad to see that things are moving in this direction. Yeah, definitely exciting. Uh, so let's move from exciting to slightly scary. All right. So we're going to jump into a fairly prolonged topic for the vast majority of the rest of the cast. We're going we're to cover a few things with the iPhone hack here at the end too, but I think that'll be fairly quick because everyone on this cast is very used to us saying, hey, there's a new vulnerability. But we're going to talk today about Web 3.0. And I, I want to begin this by saying that me and John have been talking about this behind the scenes for a while now. I read an article a few months ago that a mentor gave to me written by a gentleman named Moxie Marlin Spike, which by the way, incredible name, superhero name, if there ever was one, um, who talked about his experience experimenting with web 3.0. So I'm going to just acknowledge right away that I'm taking vast majorities of this segment in this show from that article. It's going to be linked in the show notes, but a special tip of the hat and thanks to Moxie for writing this all up. Uh, so let's start with two things first. What is Web 3.0? How does it compare to whatever Web 1.0 and 2.0 were? We're going to talk about that. And then who is Moxie Marlin Spike and why should you listen to this particular superhero? So let's get into the, the basics of it. The general thesis is that web one was decentralized, i.e. people were running web servers on their computers and universities and DARPAnet and all these things way back in the day when modems were how you accessed things. Web 2.0 centralized everything onto platforms, i.e. you connect to your ISP, that ISP, you know, Google is your search engine, you come to like the same AOL web interface once you dial in, and then web 
three will decentralize everything again. And the dream, the vision, if you will, is that Web3 should give us the richness of Web2, but have it all be back to that decentralized model. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why this is a thing. If you talk to anybody who is in the privacy advocacy space or concerned with um, content filtering or uh, net neutrality, there's a general premise that these large corporations have a ton of power. And if they choose to do not good with that power, they can, and there's literally nothing to stop them. And when there's nothing to stop them, it's always tough to know, are they doing it? Are they not doing it? How do you even tell in some cases? And so it's just, it gets sort of dystopian really quick. And so the, the promise of Web 3.0 is that the power goes back to the people. It's decentralized. Uh, and we shouldn't have to worry about this anymore. We, we want a safer, more secure, more open, more private web from which to browse. Yeah, so just kind of one thought here. So we we did say a bunch of, hey, decentralized and making sure the platforms have the power and making sure that the people have more of a voice and whatever. Uh, as I was kind of doing the kind of like left-hand, right-hand research to Kyle's side of this, one of the things that was brought up is this is actually one of the things that led to the advent of the disinformation explosion. That's because right. previously, you essentially had print publication and publishers either worried about being sued or found liable or reputation wise just would not put out absolute tire fires of disinformation. And then as we've kind of gone further down here, uh, I think it's important to remember there is a little bit of a sliding scale of free speech and that can really easily be turned into weaponized disinformation, i.e. say, you know, you're nation state one and you want nation state two to be destabilized or you want them to being a do doing a bunch of infighting so that they're not finding out what's happening over here with the sleight of hand. Um, and the other thing is that is also an environment that is rife to allow for abuse uh, because, you know, certain populations of people can pretty easily be targeted. And in a decentralized model, it's fairly difficult to crack down on that, it's especially from a like stalking abuse and uh, just kind of like targeted online violence that, as we've talked on previous episodes, have kind of jumped from the purely uh, logical domain into the physical domain here of late. Correct. And so this article was written again by Moxie Marlinspike, who was a former head of the security team at Twitter, um, generally an entrepreneur who created Signal. So if you've heard of Signal, which if you're into the encrypted peer-to-peer -peer messaging space, uh, you probably are. And if you're not familiar with Signal, but you are familiar with WhatsApp, Google Messenger, Facebook Messenger, or Skype, um, the Signal protocol, which is what powered Signal as a product or still does to this day, is used by all of them to provide the encryption for those end-to-end -end messages. So Moxie is not a person who speaks often. And so when he does, I tend to try and listen. Um, and that's what led us to this quick explanation here. So I want to add some of the detail that makes us concerned. And when I say us, I'm just talking about John and I here about the security implications of Web 3.0. And let's start with a couple truisms, if you will. Number one, first and foremost, people do not want to run their own servers. And I cannot envision a future in which people will want to all run their own servers. I don't think that anyone's parents or teenagers are going to want to have a small server rack or a Raspberry Pi fleet that runs the servers for them, that helps them access their internet. We, we just don't see that becoming a thing. 
even like, I don't want to run my own servers. I love the cloud because I press a button, I spin up a VM, I go do what I need to do. I shut that thing down and I go on with life. And the servers that I do have in my house are like Raspberry Pis to run some DNS filtering and to do some very basic, like uh, I roll my own home security type stuff. Little tinkering. Light yeah, tinkering. tinkering. Light tinkering. Right? I do not want a server rack. I have had server racks in my house. I do not ever want them. Again, bad news. Um, second truism. A protocol moves much more slowly than a platform. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of dive into that, right? Like even after 30 years, email is still unencrypted by default. Like let that sink in, right? Meanwhile, the, the WhatsApp and Signal protocols went from completely unencrypted to completely end-to-end -end encrypted in less than like six months. Uh, people are still trying to figure out how to reliably share video over IRC. Uh, and, but Slack lets you create custom emojis based on your own facial recognition at this point. So you can kind of see how protocols move slow, right? But platforms move really quickly. This isn't funding. If something's truly decentralized, it becomes really difficult to change and often remains kind of a, a time capsule of where it was, uh, IPv4, anybody? Um, and this is a problem for technology. It's a problem for the ecosystem because the ecosystem moves much faster. And if you don't keep up, you end up failing. Uh, there are entire parallel industries focused on defining and improving, you know, how to build stuff methodologies like Agile. And the point is we all want things to move as quickly as possible because that's so critical protocols are not good ways to do that. Just, it's, everything's too slow. Hey, what's normally the existential problem of speed versus, what was that other word? Ooh, uh, rhymes with mishmurity, right? Yes, just like yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, just like that. Uh, and, and so, if you haven't noticed, blockchain, ledger technology, NFTs, crypto, that's moving real fast, y'all. Real real fast. So much so that most people who even talk about them right now do not understand how they function. It's just a word that has built itself into the lexicon. And so now we use it. Uh, all of this is a little weird. So, okay, great. We've got everything going on here. Let's take a hard look at sort of why and how this gets interesting. And there's a bunch of notes from this article that are worth noting. That's a terrible sentence, but we're going to roll with that because it's a podcast. All the network diagrams that you ever see of how Web3 works are servers. It's all servers. You don't see clients in here. The trust model is between servers. Everything is about the servers because blockchains are designed to be a network of peers by their very definition, but they're not designed that it's really possible for anything you and I would consider a peer to be one of those. Your browser can't be a peer. Your mobile device can't be a peer. They simply don't have enough storage and speed of processing in order to be a peer on most of these networks. And so because of that, client server is very weird in 3.0. We talk about blockchains, but the only alternative is to interact with a blockchain that is a node running it. And so you are kind of a client, but you're not really. You're accessing a server that kind of is a client. And what's even weirder about this is if you're into the uh, Ethereum space, which is a huge, huge subset of crypto technology these days, or, or the uh, crypto as a monetary implement, Ether calls it servers clients. So there's actually not even a word in the Ethersphere to define what your phone accessing that is or your wallet accessing that is. Now, everything in, you're going to hear a term if you research this called dApps, distributed applications. In that same Ethersphere, almost everything that accesses the distributed application network or that ledger is run through a very small number of companies, in particular two. 
And so all this talk of being distributed really boils down to interacting with a tiny number of companies who give you your version of what true means. So everyone who's like, yeah, I don't want to have Google and Apple and Microsoft controlling my destiny. You, you really need to understand the technology that you are putting your wagon, you know, attaching your horse to that wagon, because it is the exact same because of the very nature of the technology and the difficulty in storing and computing and validating truth on this distributed network. So now let's start to talk about what does it actually mean to have something on that network? This gets even more weird. Data isn't stored in the ledger or on the chain. The data is somewhere else. And usually we're just storing a URL. If you take any NFT that you've seen, NFT being a non-fungible transaction. And NFT means you digitally own content is how I'm going to summarize that. And anyone who's listening to this cast and goes, Kyle, that's not technically accurate. You're absolutely right. But just for the general population, we're going to say NFT is digitally owning some content. I have a, uh, a JPEG or a PNG or an image that I've drawn on the back of a napkin and taken a cell phone camera photo of. Someone can own that and own the original. Doesn't stop anybody from copying it. Doesn't stop any of that. But that's what it is. If you own an NFT and you point somebody to say, hey, look, here's the NFT that I own, what's really happening is you're just giving them a URL. And when you point to the ledger that is backing your data flow to prove that that is indeed yours, even the ledger is saying you just own the destination of the URL. And so there's no hash, there's no encryption, there's no CRC, it's just pointing at a crappy web server somewhere. And it's exceedingly easy to just hack this crappy Apache-based VM or buy the domain when it expires because no one paid the bill or or whatever to change that content. Or, so, or redirect or black hole. Right. There's a thousand ways, right? This is Web 101 without trying to get into the, I'm, I'm, you know, we're talking about Web 1, 2, and 3. I don't mean it that way. Just this is basics of getting packets and things from point A to point B. Now, because of that, you can copy that URL, you can change that URL. The NFT that you bought today could become a poop emoji tomorrow. There's literally nothing stopping that from happening. And the ledger has absolutely no control. And the underlying Web3 technology that you're using ultimately has no control. So, okay. Then <laughs> interacting with saying like, I want what my content is, like give me the URL is really just making an API call. And these API calls are yet again, controlled by a super duper small number of companies. And because of the decentralized nature of this, there's no authentication, there's no signatures or nothing to prove that any one of those APIs is actually telling you the truth what, of what gets returned from the blockchain. And until you make your own node that sits on the ledger, which requires lots of computing power and storage space, you can't actually tell if that's true or not. You again are just trusting the small number of companies. And I just keep coming back to the but I don't want Google or Microsoft or Apple controlling them. I did it. Well, okay, you're just changing one name for another at that point. And these small numbers of companies can effectively do whatever they want. They can pseudo remove entries from the chain by simply not resolving them anymore or black holing those URLs themselves. And, and there's nothing that you can do. And the wallet that you use to hold, whether it's crypto or NFT tokens or whatever, those wallets are just accessing those same APIs to tell you what's on your wallet. So when they remove something from their API calls, your wallet thinks it's gone too. And this just layers over and over and over again to give me a lot of concern about 
how this is all going down today. And always remember, too, this is very early days. Like, remember that the internet as we know it is decades old, right? Web3 is not. It's like, uh, I think Bitcoin was first white papered in 2013. Someone's going to correct me on that, but I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and go to limb. So it's like less than a decade. So we've got a lot of catching up to do and we'll get there. I'm not worried about that. But let's take this back to a web 2.0 example, just for everybody listening. Anyone listening to this podcast can launch their own email server. Like you can go set one up today. Super easy to do. There's a medium article that'll walk you through it. And if you do that, because you don't trust Microsoft or Google or, you know, Hotmail or whatever, that doesn't really matter for your privacy or censorship reasons because Gmail or Outlook is going to be somewhere along the chain of who you actually want to email, right? You're not going to go have your mom and your dad build a server and be able to email that for end to end. They're just still going to be on Gmail or they're going to be on their Hotmail account or whatever. And so if you want to not have people listening in, cool, go go for it. Uh, John is also reminding me that I was not only off by a small amount, but by a large amount. The Bitcoin white paper was 2008 and I'm just mixing up all my dates and years. So that's, that's crazy though. Like, let's yeah. just take a 2008. Yeah. Holy crap. That's, that's crazy stuff. That's that crazy is stuff. not what I, I, th- I thought you were wrong in the wrong direction on 13. <laughs> I was, I was thinking like, take it, take it the other way. We're all getting old, John. There's too yeah. much, too much rattling around these brains. Of yes, we are. And so I'm going to wrap this sort of conversation up by again, directly quoting some of the feedback from this article. Um, we've got to accept the fact that people are not going to want to run their own servers and we got to design these systems so that you can distribute trust without having distribute infrastructure. And this is much harder to do than to say, right? This means architecture that anticipates and accept the inevitable outcome of a relatively centralized client server relationship, but uses cryptography rather than infrastructure to distribute trust. Um, it is worth noting that for all of the use of the word crypto in this ecosystem, there is shockingly little actual cryptography with any of the Web 3.0 technologies. I mean, in general, though, like just just sit back and think about how it's going to work, right? How would you encrypt that exactly? And isn't kind of the point of writing it to the blockchain for that to be available and readable in yeah. a distributed manner? I mean, one one would argue you know, not a bug, a feature. Um, And then I guess the question is, have you analyzed the repercussions of that? Do you, do you completely understand what that really means? Right. You you know, and I, I've heard a lot about even just understanding the technology is probably a significantly higher, just the basics of the technology, probably a significantly higher bar than most will be able to digest. So, you know, I'm just stopping and acknowledging that right now. But then when you take it a step further and kind of dig into exactly how does the stuff behind that technology work that you described, it's like, okay, interesting. And our Venn diagram is getting smaller and smaller. Like now the people who understand the security implications of that now, you know what I mean? And it's like, uh uh-oh. Agree. Now, I'll add one bit to this as sort of my closing thought on that topic. If you make a technology designed to be open and designed to be readable and verifiable by anybody while wanting to remain as anonymous and maintain and guarantee your own privacy as possible, those are wild ends of a spectrum from which to find a happy medium. So anyone who thinks that, oh, it's just so easy, I, come try it. 
come try it. You know what I mean? If you solve this problem, you're going to be rich. So go right ahead. I, I eagerly want you to go try because it's worth the effort. All right. Last little bit on this. We should try to reduce the burden of building software. Um, this is a direct quote from the end of this article, and I want to just double click on all of this. Software projects require an enormous amount of human effort. Even really simple stuff requires a group of people to sit in front of a computer for eight hours a day, every day, forever. And if you don't do it and you're like Google and you cancel the reader application, people lose their minds on you. But this wasn't always the case, right? We didn't always have teams of 50 developers sitting around and call that a small team, right? Like one dude made Linux, one guy, right? And I mean, a bunch of other people came in to help with that. But at the end of the day, this isn't or didn't used to be as hard as it is today. And John, we've talked about uh, software supply chain management and should the Marine Corps write our own software and all these things that just layer onto this problem. But as long as software requires so much energy and so much specialized human focus, we're going to have a tendency to serve the interests of the people sitting in the room rather than what may necessarily be the better common good for the ecosystem. And that's not criticism. It's just reality, right? It's, it's, Everyone gets myopic when you're doing the same thing eight hours a day for your life and making it your profession. So changing our relationship with technology, probably going to require making software easier to create. Uh, it doesn't necessarily look like any of that's going to happen anytime soon because I don't equate easy to good security. I don't equate easy to scalability. Uh, and that's, that's a problem. And so I think things are going to get uh, <laughs> not less complicated and not less difficult to be my final quote from Mr. Marlon Spike. So yet again, thank you to Moxie for writing this article. Uh, and everybody, please go read it. I think it's good. And start to do your own research. Uh, and if you want to learn about this, I, I encourage you to try to follow Moxie's example here. Go try and launch a distributed application. Go try and make and market an NFT. It's a wild roller coaster. Wow, you really ended that one on a low note. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but speaking of low notes, uh, I don't know if you've read in the news lately, uh, but I took a look at a Ars Technica article, although I had seen this like six or seven different areas, specifically talking about the ability to hack iPhones when they are turned off. Come again? Hacking iPhones when they are turned off. You not just kind of like airplane. OFF position? Like OFF position, yeah. Not the airplane mode, not whatever. Like this thing is powered down and you can still hack it. Like, Tell us more, John. Ooh. So what, what ends up happening is th this is a flaw in the Bluetooth chip for iPhones. Specifically, the chip cannot digitally sign or encrypt firmware that it runs. So what ends up happening is, and this so is it one has of to the, trust others, basically. I mean, or it just uh, runs unencrypted. It doesn't unsigned. have it doesn't have a mechanism to uh, I see, I see. double check those things. Okay. So when you don't have that, then obviously the ability for abuse. I get code. I run code. And right, end of story. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wait, like oh wait, I can ch I can change this to whatever mm -hmm. I want it to. Like whoa, okay. Um, so that's basically where we're at now. The article says that this is purely theoretical, and that no one has code. Uh, and those of you listening at home, you can't see my eyebrow going way up in the air, but it is up there. So like. One man's theoretical is another man's proof of concept. Yeah. Um, so I, I am sure someone either has this or is well on their way to working this thing. Mm. But the rough idea is someone could write malware that would exploit the low power mode and 
in this case, it's used by Bluetooth, but Bluetooth, NFC, and other things. Uh, the, the things they specifically talked about is being able to use credit cards or start cars, even if your phone is off. Um, so, and then the, the main reason this kind of came about was because of the find my iPhone feature. So you can find your phone even when it's turned off, which I will say as a person, you know, phones are wicked expensive, especially if you're thinking about if you use a phone, you know, your 13 year old disappears and you're like, oh my gosh, where's the kid? Like the, the ability to kind of get a ping and find out where they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of peace of mind there. So you can completely understand why people, or if someone stole a, these things cost like over a grand at this point, right? So if someone stole your one grand thing and like, where is this? Uh, you get why people would want the ability to do this. So it's not completely crazy and it's not an iPhone conspiracy to uh, complete, completely hose over you, the consumer. Like you get why this happens, Absolutely. but when you have a surface area, especially a surface area with some gaps in the defenses, as we've kind of talked about, <laughs> uh, like, ugh. yeah. Um, so, uh, go ahead. I, I want to share a quick story on this of why, well, we've talked about this before, continuously reassessing what you think, you know, um, I had to recently get a second car because in a post COVID world, I'm now traveling a little bit more again. Um, and I got a, a new vehicle from the dealership, which was a miracle. Uh, I've been on, I've been on a wait list for a vehicle for seven months and they're expecting that it's going to take me at least another nine to 12 to get that vehicle that I've ordered. So I kind of like took what I could get. And in getting this vehicle, they explained to me, I installed the app on my phone and I can start the vehicle for my phone. And they're like, well, the vehicle won't actually let you put the car into drive unless the key is present, but you can start the vehicle. And, and like the salesperson didn't even need to start talking anymore. I was like, if the phone can access the car and has enough knowledge and power to turn it on, I promise you somebody somewhere can override that and make that car completely drivable at that point. Because I have no faith that there's good security in that device. I have no faith that the multi-thousand pound car that I'm driving down the road could absolutely be controlled by somebody. Uh, I've seen enough news articles and I know enough about what's the right way to put this. Uh, how can I be polite about this? I have so little faith in end user technology in IOT style devices, which I would consider a car that I just always assume that it's totally 100% hackable. And, and there's no way that I can disable this feature on my vehicle, by the way, I, I have looked into this deeply. Nope, it's just part of the normal everyday executing code. And yeah. so here I am, just again, watching a little bit of my trust and confidence in anything security be chipped away at. But it's hard. It's hard to think that anything that we do at this point is truly secure. So make yourselves a hard target, everybody. That's that's the number one thing. Awareness is important. Yes. Yep. Awareness is important. Good news, though, you will be getting emails when uh, it's time to get an oil change. Uh, oh. Never would have had that before. You're welcome. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Awareness is incredibly important. And uh, I think to, to Kyle's point about the awareness, like being aware is great. Like awareness, it's hot out. Uh, what are you going to do about that? Mm -hmm. Are you carrying it? Are you wearing clothing designed for sweat? Are you bringing out hydration sources? Are you, bring, you know, doing all the different, like if you are not changing your patterns as a result of this, if you're not re-looking at security uh, or making sure your policies are up to date uh, around iPhones and just around all of these different things. Like, I, I think this should help you reevaluate the way that you look at things. I don't think, maybe prior to this article, or article, but 
several years ago, I don't think I would have ever thought, hey, if I've got a turned off phone, uh, this is something that would be exploitable. I don't think John five or 10 years ago would have thought that. Probably last year, yeah, but uh, not not five <laughs> or 10 years ago. So you know, if, if you're not kind of reassessing your models, maybe now's a good time to do that. Solid call. So uh, with that, we have come to the end of the episode. And that means it's time for Kyle's hot, hot take. Hit us. All right. Here's my hot take. Go learn a little bit about Web 3.0. And here's my challenge to every listener out there. Anyone wants to make a Chief Warrant Officer 2 rank logo NFT or a Lieutenant Colonel NFT that I can buy so that I control John and Rich, somebody please do that. I will happily uh, spend a small amount of money to buy your NFT if you want to go ahead and do this. Uh, and you'll learn a lot along the way. Uh, anyone who's not made one, go give it a shot. It is a weird, wild world. You will fall down many rabbit holes, but it's a lot of learning at the end of that one. So give it a shot. Always learn new things. All right. Love this. I love how you've weaponized the, uh, podcast listenership. So what I'm uh, trying to do. To take on your kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, personal pot shots. This is great. <laughs> this is great. This, this means that we're adapting with the system, which is really mm-hmm. exciting. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts, which you have not been doing, and leaving a five-star review with a comment. And with that, we're out.